Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're continuing a short series of podcasts about the mass violence in Indonesia starting in 1965. In the next couple months, I'll talk with Vanessa Heerman about her upcoming book, Unmarked Graves. Today, though, I'm excited to have Jess Melvin back on the show. Jess is postdoctoral research associate at the Sydney Southeast Asia Center, and I recently interviewed her, along with her co-editors, Annie Pullman and Kate McGregor, about their volume of essays titled The Indonesian Genocide of 1965. Today, she's here to talk in detail about her own book, The Army and the Indonesian Genocide, Mechanics of Mass Murder. In the book, Jess takes advantage of a remarkable new set of sources to answer questions about the genocide that have puzzled researchers for 50 years. In particular, she's able to look at military decisions and actions on a day-to-day, sometimes even hour-to-hour level, in the Aceh region of Indonesia. By doing so, she offers much more clarity about the role of the military in the decision to launch a campaign of genocidal violence. It's a great book, and I'm looking forward to the chance to chat with her about it. And so, Jess, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be back. So you tell in the book uh, the story... Uh, of how this book came to be and the surprising discovery of a whole new set of sources um, that you found. So I'm wondering if we could start by having you retell that story for the audience. Of how I came across the documents. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. I'm like, when I started uh, my research into 1965, I think, as I mentioned last time, I'd been working in Aceh um, for a few years um, and I'd been seeing the way that the, the military was still behaving at that time in 2005. And I became interested in uh, the origins of the Indonesian New Order. And um, I was looking into 1965. I realised that we really didn't know very much at all, not only what was happening in Aceh but also nationally. So I came back to Aceh and started doing interviews with um, survivors of the violence but also with other eyewitnesses and participants in that violence. And I got a good sense from what they were saying that it was very clear that the Indonesian military had been very heavily involved. But the question was how um, it, how to prove that. And um, what we had, we had a situation in the scholarship where we had basically the military's line being put up against oral history accounts. And it was being said that that was not enough to prove the role of the military and to do that, it would be necessary to find you know, documentary evidence. And it wasn't even believed at that point that that sort of documentary evidence had been produced. So it wasn't believed that the military had produced written orders or had been keeping records. I was um, blown away when I was sent um, in an email a, a document that one of my colleagues had found. So after the tsunami in Aceh, there was a, a real effort to try and get a lot of the, the archives in Aceh had been destroyed and the uh, the libraries around the world that did have documents from Aceh uh, went through a process of digitising those and giving them back to Aceh. And part of that process, um, there was one document that was found. It was the complete yearly report of the Aceh military command. And um, it's the military's account of, of what happened in 1965 and it wasn't thought that this sort of thing even existed. So I now knew that um, the, the military had been um, keeping a record of what happened and it was very clear that the military had been in control of what was happening. So I went back to Aceh and I went into the former intelligence agency's archives and asked to see documents. I didn't go in and say, oh, look, I'm looking for documents from the time of the killing. I, um, I went in and said, I'm looking for examples of, you know, um, successful conflict resolution from around this period hmm. and from um, I wasn't able to go into the the body of the archives but I got a, a record of what they had and I was able to choose a number of documents um, 
based on the date that they were produced. And I thought, you know, if I'm lucky, I might be given one or two pieces of paper. Um, and I couldn't believe my luck when I was, you know, subsequently handed a, a box full of photocopied documents. These um, several listed files were uh, contained many, many documents within them, which recorded in um, excruciating detail the way that the, the military did conduct its campaign. It was a real game changer in terms of uh, what was known to exist about the military's records of this time. So I'm I'm curious about what it's like to do Indonesia research in Indonesia on this topic. Is it you, you see you you mentioned that you, you didn't feel like you should or could go in and ask for specific documents with kind of a transparent sense of what what you were researching. How hard is it going to be to kind of follow up on this research in other regions of of Indonesia? Well, the military since um, has issued an announcement saying that they've gone through their archives to try and destroy any other ones that might exist. Um, And there's new um, regulations on who's able to even access, you know, foreigners being able to access museums in an attempt to sort of shut down new research being conducted. But Indonesia is an amazing place. the things that are said at the national level don't always translate down to the local level. Um, And I'd encourage anyone who's interested in researching 1965 to go and try their luck at finding this sort of um, evidence because it does exist. And I think um, in the case of Aceh, I was lucky because the the focus there has been much more on the recent conflict, so the separatist uh, struggle that occurred. Um, So 1965 is not so sensitive. But I... uh, I believe that these documents do exist all around the country. So let's talk about the book and let's start out. Most of our listeners uh, have maybe read about Aceh in the news, but don't know much about it. So, so can you describe Aceh for us? Oh, Aceh is a a very interesting and beautiful place. Um, It it was a sultanate, a very important center of Islamic learning, Um, but it was conquered uh, by the Dutch, it was one of the last places within the archipelago to be brought under control and there was a very savage and long um, holy war. It was termed in those ways against um, the Dutch at that time, lead, leading to a very prolonged struggle. Um, and there's been uh, periods of, of um, struggle again. So we had the Islamic uh, rebellion, the Dutch Islam in the 1950s, and then the outbreak of the more recent conflict between the Free Aceh Movement and the central government, um, which heated up again in the, the 1990s and went on until 2005. So it's a, it's a place that is seen as being in some ways different to the rest of Indonesia. It's the only place in Indonesia today where there is Sharia um, in place. People are flogged for minor moral offences. Um, but in another way, it's sort of the spiritual heart of Indonesia. It's its link with the broader Islamic world and there's this tension between its otherness and the way that it sort of captures what it is to be Indonesian, I think, as well. Throughout the book, you you highlight the narrative or, or you tell the narrative, or you explain the narrative that the army told about the violence and then you offer your own counter narrative. So, so maybe we could start by asking you to, to, to explain what narrative the army told about the violence and, and how it tried to tell that narrative. Okay, so f- from the very beginning, the, the military came out publicly um, to say that it was acting in a defensive manner, that a group called the 30th September Movement, which it claimed was a front for the Indonesian Communist Party, had launched a coup attempt. Um, and that the military needed to step in to save the nation, to restore security. The story is then that the population uh, rose up in anger against the communists um, and there was this major outpouring of, of anger leading to violence and they talk about uh, spontaneous outbreaks of violence of bloodbaths occurring throughout the nation and being led by um, villagers, by Muslims, um, trying to portray it as a sort of a a holy war even against communism. Uh, But then the military being the one who uh, needed to step in to bring an end to that violence. So in the case of Aceh, if you look at what was said, um, 
we have this sense that the, the violence began in Aceh because, you know, the Achenese hate communists so much, but then that the Aceh military commander uh, was the one who stepped in to bring that violence to an end. So that was a story that the military told, but it was also unfortunately the story that scholars also began to tell because it was one of the only coherent narratives really, apart from the oral history testimony that could be found to explain what had happened. So it became the dominant narrative um, as the, the state narrative in Indonesia, but it also became uh, the, the dominant scholarly narrative for a very long time too. And you set out to offer a counter to that narrative, and you start by looking at Aceh and, and Indonesia more broadly before 1965 and talking about the increasing tensions and polarizations that characterized uh, maybe the late 50s, maybe earlier, I don't know, and then the 60s. Maybe you could say something. What are, what are the what are the fault lines in Indonesia society? What are the what are the factional lines or sides that emerge in this period? And and in particular, what is in the fifties and sixties? What is the army's vision for a future Indonesia? Well, that was a question at the time too. Like, what sort of a, a state would Indonesia become? And um, we had uh, this amazing national revolution. In the, 1945 to 1949 and this um, struggle against colonial oppression and this need for independence but the question of what kind of a state would Indonesia become and right, right from the very beginning there was a tension between these different visions for what sort of country Indonesia would be and Sukarno himself who was Indonesia's first president but also a very very important national leader talking about these different visions. So he would speak about the nationalist vision, the um, the Islamist vision, and the communist vision. And all of these visions were competing with one another. And they participated often. Indonesia is a very big place. So although there was a shared desire to overthrow the Dutch and to have independence um, in different areas, people uh, translated that in different ways and their emphasis was different. Um, and then there was a negotiation uh, once independence was won over which of those visions would become the most dominant one. And Sukarno played a, a very important role in being able to manage and talk about the need for these groups to work together. But we see um, this real struggle for the Indonesian state developing uh, from the 1950s with the military uh, emerging as a separate uh, power within Indonesian society with its own vision. And, of course, the military has the ability to implement its wishes in a way that some of these other groups don't. And we see um, this power struggle um, changing and it becomes a, a power struggle between the military and the Indonesian Communist Party, which was um, growing at that time. It was one of the largest, well, it was the largest Communist Party outside the USSR and Communist China at that time by the, the, the early 1960s, with Sukarno playing a role of, of balancing those two groups. But the military, we now know, was playing a much more proactive role in attempting to um, set the stage for it to be able to seize control of the Indonesian state. And one of the, the stories I talk about is that we know that the, the military leadership um, was in, con in contact with um, the, the United States at that time. They had shared an interest in um, bringing the military to power, making sure that the communists were not successful. They were very worried about Sukarno. He was declaring himself openly at that time to be a Marxist, to be a supporter of communism. And they thought that they would need to find a way um, to uh, uh, not allow that the communists to come to power. But of course, Sukarno was very popular in how to deal with that. Um, but we see this shift occurring in the in the months before uh, the military, in fact, launched its own coup, where it decides that it can no longer you know, take the risk of, of waiting. They're concerned that the communists are going to um, launch their own uh, bid for power sooner rather than later, and they want to be the ones who take the jump uh, first. One of the parts of the military narrative or the army's narrative is the idea that the the thirtieth September group was or movement was was trying for a coup. Um, is that what you conclude from the evidence? 
for a very long time, a lot of scholarly focus has been on what was the 30th September trying to do, and it's been a way of um, overwriting the story of the killings. So you, if you see the military's account, they'll produce booklets and they'll spend, you know, the, the first 80% of the book describing the ins and outs of what the 30th September movement was doing and what their intentions were, and then we have the final sections addressing the killings. Um, so, of course, we need to to deal with the 30th September movement and take what happened seriously. Um, but I think uh, the question of, of what was really happening has been addressed very well by John Russo in his book Pretext for Mass Murder. There was a group called the 30th September movement um, and what they did was foolhardy and stupid, but it appears what they were trying to do was bring attention. There were a group of um, disgruntled left-wing um, army uh, army officers. They were trying to bring attention to Sakana of the fact that the military itself was trying to launch a coup. And what they did is they kidnapped key members of the military leadership and it appears the plan was to bring them before Sakano and say, look, this is what their plans are. You need to act to stop them. This is your your justification to be able to now act. Um, but instead what happened is when they were kidnapping the, the the leadership, they killed them. And it doesn't appear that this was something that they intended to do. It was a very stupid thing for them to do um, because you know, they now had blood on their hands. They couldn't bring them before Sukarno and the military now had uh, the perfect uh, reason to now respond to them. And, um, in fact, it sort of put... It shifted the the debate so far out of what was deemed to be acceptable. It's one of the reasons why I think the military was able to uh, react in such an aggressive manner and without any sort of um, halt on on what it was doing. But of course, the the third September movement was blamed on the Indonesian Communist Party as a whole. Now, if we want to look at what the the third September movement did, it was clearly wrong. They are responsible for the murder of key members of the military leadership. They needed to be brought to account for what they did. But what happened is that instead of um, proceeding in that manner, the the military used it as a, a reason to blame the entire Indonesian Communist Party, which I said was the largest communist party in the world outside the USSR and communist China. We're talking about millions of members or people who are part of groups that are in some way associated with the the Indonesian Communist Party or the left more generally. And all of these people were attacked. Every single person who identified with not just the Indonesian Communist Party but the the communist group, so this left-wing ideology within Indonesia, were brutally attacked and hunted down. They were put into jails and then subsequently killed. So... One of the reasons you – and you go into this in some detail in the book, and one of the reasons you do is to show that the army actually responded by implementing a plan to, I guess, I'll let you supply the words, but knock out the communist opposition or threat. Um, even perhaps before the September 30th movement, before this um, – immediate threat was was in some sense announced so uh this idea that it was coup so all of that is a way of inviting you to say in those first hours after the information about this at the 30th september movement's action emerged how, how did the army respond it's very interesting how they responded so if we can step back just a little bit before that even so the the at that time the 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 big campaign that Sukarno was using to um, unify the population was the Ganyang Malaysia campaign, so the confrontation with um, the formation of Malaysia as an independent state, which he claimed was a, a puppet of British imperialism and needed to be opposed. Um, that campaign was being used um, both by the left and by the military to prepare for this showdown, so that this who was going to seize control of the Indonesian state. And the military was concerned that the the, the communists were the ones who were using this campaign. Um, so one of the things that Sukarno announced in the, the very immediate period before the coup was his intention to set up um, a fifth force or a people's army where he would call upon millions of civilians to be mobilised and given arms training um, to act as a people's uh, militia. 
and it was worried that this was going to be the way that the the, the communists would um, uh, challenge the military's uh, monopoly of armed force. But the reality is the communists didn't have arms at this time. It was largely sort of a rhetorical thing that they were talking about. The military, meanwhile, was also preparing and using the same um, campaign to do this. So it was conducting um, militia training of civilian groups, which were later used as their shock troops um, in the attack against the Communist Party. But they were also establishing in Sumatra, and this was not known about before, but a whole new um, military chain of command, um, and it was justified as a way um, to be able to implement the, the Ganyang Malaysia campaign. So they established a structure whereby they were able to not only um, uh, carry out uh, militia training but implement martial law throughout the entire territory of Sumatra without first having to ask the permission of Sukarno. It was enough to say that this was being um, uh, implemented to carry out the, the Ganyang Malaysia campaign. So this was established um, in the lead up to the 1st of October, but it was activated on the morning of the 1st of October explicitly to carry out what the military then began describing as its annihilation operation. So these, uh, in addition to setting up um, this um, chain of command, it had also done these dry run tests where it had seen if it was possible to use it to mobilise the population. And then this was also activated. They described it as the Operasi Badikari and the activation of the this military command. This was done on the 1st of October. It was a very um, sort of proactive way to respond to what was really, you know, if you're looking at it objectively, um, as a challenge in Jakarta. It was, the whole of Sumatra was placed under martial law. And we also know that the, the military was... Um, involved in intensive communication. So before the discovery of the Indonesian genocide files, there was only one known public announcement that Suharto had made. So Suharto had assumed um, the position of um, commander of the armed forces because it was known that Yani, who was the previous commander of the armed forces, was missing. He'd He'd been killed and Sahato was in his right to assume that position temporarily. Um, he had later refused to step down from this position and this was an act of insubordination. But he used this position from that morning to begin sending out um, communications to those under his control throughout the country, announcing that this coup movement had occurred in the capital and that people should await further orders from him. Um, and these orders we now know came at midnight that night. So Moko Ginta, he was the interregional military commander in Sumatra. And we know more about Sumatra than other places because this is where the Indonesian genocide files come from. He got on the radio at midnight in Medan and announced that it was mandatory for the armed forces to completely annihilate the 30th September movement. So we have orders to annihilate beginning on the 1st of October um, at a time when the 30th September movement was being crushed in the capital, it was no longer a security threat. But from this time, we see an intensification of the military's campaign. On the 4th of October, we now know from the Indonesian genocide files that the military was ordering civilians to participate explicitly again in what it was describing as its annihilation campaign. And stepped up this from this time, we now know that after this point, the military was touring around, um, coming out publicly. First, it was meeting with members of the military leadership, getting them on board with civilian leaders. And in Sumatra, they were now under martial law. But then going out and holding public meetings where they were telling civilians, you must help us to kill the PKI or it will be you who we target. Um, We see it's what I describe as the initiation period um, and an organisation of what was happening. But then um, a period of public killings, which occur after this coordination occurs, the coordination tour in, in Aceh happened, and then progressing on to the systematic mass killings, which begin on the 14th of October. And this is also documented in um, the Indonesian genocide files. And it was a response to the fact that um, after these mass uh, arrests that were occurring, these public killings that were occurring, the military had to decide what to do with this large prison population and it decided to annihilate the prison population and it established a war, a war room 
on the 4th of, 14th of October to be able to, to carry this out. So it's a very coordinated campaign that's happening. So, so let's step back to the public violence stage you, you mentioned. Um, so so what, what was the nature of this public violence and, and what was its purpose? So the public violence begins, and again, we can now see um, it's possible to piece um, a chronology together from um, the military's own records, so they produced a chronology, but also from speaking with people. Um, after, the, so this is talking about Aceh because we know the very specific details, but we can see the broad patterns also occurring in other areas. We just don't have the dates, right, because we don't have the military's orders um, account of this. But in Aceh what we see is that um, Isaac Juarsa, after consolidating the military leadership in Banda Aceh, he travelled around the province and um, he met in each district with the military leadership there and then with the civilian leadership and then he held these public meetings. After these public meetings, often as a direct sort of flow on from these public meetings, there would be pogroms, big public demonstrations, which were occurring under the eyes of the military. And the people who were at these demonstrations, but also the trained militia groups that um, the the military was um, now calling upon, would march upon the houses or the offices or buildings otherwise associated with the communists, so the left more generally really, but they would march on these offices and if they found people in those offices, they would drag them out onto the street. Sometimes they would kill them on the street. Sometimes they would take them back to um, the death squad houses um, and torture them and kill them and then dump the bodies on the streets. Um, There were also burnings that were occurring of the buildings and of um, the the documents and the typewriters that were found in these um, buildings. And it seemed to be a way of saying um, we are now in control um, and to instill great fear into the population because at the same time the military is not openly saying that it's the one that's carrying out um, this terror campaign, these public killings, even though it's recording them. And, in fact, um, what happened is um, some of these people um, who had not been killed in the initial wave of violence because they were scared of what was happening, because they were scared of the violence on the streets, they requested um, protection from the military, thinking that, you know, if we just present ourselves from the military, um, and do what they want us to do. Maybe we'll be protected. Maybe we'll be held in jail for a while. Um, but they were brought into detention and they were later killed as part of the systematic mass killings. But I think it was a way to terrorise people and it was also a way of making very clear that the old rules were no longer um, being used. The rule of law had been suspended um, and violence would now be the way that this conflict would be resolved. And when in, in the military narrative you outlined... This stage, according to the military, is one of spontaneous killing by ordinary civilians or member of ordinary civil society organizations and parties in which the mili- and, and the military eventually intervenes. Um, so that's spontaneous, what's, but what don't you, forget. What's your sense? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So, so it, it's spontaneous in the sense that it appears spontaneous, but don't forget right. that on the 4th of October, the military had ordered civilians to participate in the killings, right? So they are being told it is mandatory for them to assist the military and the way that they're going to assist the military is to hunt down the PKI. And then the military, the Isaac Juarez in person is coming around to the districts and telling them explicitly, you know, you need to kill them or we're going to target you. So it was civilians who were leading this violence, but it was in a context in which they were being ordered to do that. Um, And I think it was very much orchestrated to appear as if it was the civilians who were leading it. And if you speak to participants in the violence, they say it was a way of the military to put civilians out in front so they could deny that they were the ones who were responsible. But, I mean, that pretense would then dissolve on the 14th of October when it, it goes into its next stage of violence. It's possible that the military was testing how much they could get away with, right, by doing that, and they were amazed that they had completely free reign. I mean, the violence continued to escalate from that point. Yeah, that's so I, I, I've shown my class um, 
the Oppenheimer film, um, The Act of Killing, several times. And the response they always come away from is that the quote the, the people featured in this film are this is their characterization, not mine, kind of bloodthirsty ideologues or maniacs who are happy to kill and happy to remember killing. Um, and, and there's been a lot of research from genocide scholars about the kind of wide variety of explanations for why ordinary people participate in mass violence. So, so what, what is your sense? Clearly, you've shown that ordinary people are the, the violence of ordinary people is coordinated by and at least initiated by the military. Do you have some sense for why ordinary people participated? So um, there was pressure for people to participate. They were being ordered to participate and they were being told very clearly if they didn't help out that they would be the ones who would be targeted. So there's that compulsion to participate. Um, But I think we also need to make distinctions between people who participated. So the people that we're seeing in the act of killing, they are members of the military-sponsored death squads. So these were the most ideologically... um, anti-communist people in that society at that time who um, before the killings um, broke out had been involved um, in organisations in, in training as well. They were part of this um, the, the dry run test training that was occurring in Sumatra. Um, and they often, um, I, I spoke to a member of a, a similar death squad in, in Banda Aceh and he told me that on the, the 1st of October when he heard about what had happened in Jakarta, he thought, oh, this is our chance. This is our chance to get get back against the communists. And he went to the military and he asked them um, what they should do. So they were, that segment of the population was um, excited and proactive in, in what they were doing and they helped out in um, some of the, the more brutal sort of public killings that occurred. Um, but that is by no means uh, the majority of people who mm-hmm. were forced to participate in the killings. And you see a different sort of uh, profile of people, in, um, in particular in the systematic mass killings that occurred. It seems that these were often s- civilians who were seen to be politically suspect, that if they didn't do what the military was asking them to do, they would be the ones who would be brought under suspicion. So I met um, civilians who uh, helped the, the military carry out um, killings by, you know, digging the mass graves or helping with the killings that occurred. And they they are not, um, they don't speak boastfully and proudly about what they did. I think they're highly traumatised uh, by what happened um, and had the sense that they were being coerced into doing uh, what they were doing. And I think this is the most horrible aspect of what the military did by blaming civilians. They put the blame for the killings on ordinary people. And these people, the Indonesian society has had to carry this burden for the last 50 years that, oh, are we bloodthirsty? Are we, you know, prone to violence? Um, and there's been no acknowledgement of the, the coercion that was involved in getting society to a point where they felt that they had no option but to... Um, participate in this you have a last stage uh in the fourth stage schema you've uh you've um identified for this and that's a stage called consolidation Um, what what was the army trying to do then well i think they were trying to govern i mean the killings weren't just for the sake of killings or for the sake of violence the military wanted to seize control of the state and it got to a point where the violence was distracting um so they'd achieved their aim they'd annihilated their enemy and now they wanted to get down to the business of governing and I think um, we can see some examples of that. Um, We have the purges that were occurring which were very highly um, documented as a way to um, make it clear that um, the military still wished to use the state structures that existed including the government bureaucracy that had previously existed, just one that had been wiped clean. Uh, But we also um, see the military 
telling off its civilian allies um, when they were attempting to continue some of this violence. So we see this in, in Aceh. So Aceh, the main killings began first and also ended first there. Um, but there's an attempt by um, some of these um, militia groups to kickstart a new campaign and they're targeting members of Aceh's uh, ethnic Chinese community. And this was seen as destabilising um, by the military and Isaac Duarsa actually went down to um, to North Aceh to tell them, you know, to, to knock it off um, and that they should follow the military's orders. And this led to uh, the mass expulsion of um, the Chinese community from, from Aceh in the Aceh military commander described this as a way of, you know, helping to to secure them and make sure that they were safe. But um, I think it was, you know, a way for the military to try and get rid of um, the problem, really. And it led to violence in North Sumatra where these refugees fled to as well. So I'm a few broader questions about the book as, as we move toward conclusion. I'm curious about the army's reputation in Indonesia in the couple decades after this violence. Um, did people respect the army or praise the army or fear the army or all three? How how does that work? It's it's a good question and it's it's complicated, I think, by the fact that the military did stay in power for so long. So mm. the the New Order regime, which came to power on the back of the killings, um, stayed in power until 1998. It's a very long period. So that was a time when the military has um, complete control over the narrative of what happened and there's very little space to question what happened and the consequences for people who do question what's happening is very serious. We can see there was an upsurge in um, pro-democracy activism in the early 1990s and those people were treated incredibly harshly whereas their student activists being disappeared, um, being discovered, um, mutilated and murdered. Um, so there was a fear, I would say, a genuine fear of, of what the, the military was capable of, but also a lack of alternative narrative for people to, to cling on to. And we can see that narrative still in place today in Indonesia. So in 1998, we have a removal of the military from parliament um, because prior to that point, the military had seats within parliament. It was clearly part of, of governing as well as security. But lots of other aspects of the military's regime remains. So one of the reasons why the military was able to do what it did in 1965 is that since the time of the national revolutions, um, they've used a territorial warfare structure. So in each province, but also in each, each district in throughout Indonesia, you not only have a civilian government structure, you have a, a military structure. That means that the military is able to mobilise the population right down to the village level. The military is there. There's no such thing as the Indonesian military going back to the barracks. Where are the barracks? The barracks are in the village, right? So the military is a persistent part of Indonesian life. And in a place like Aceh where there was a conflict, you can see that you know, it was there was martial law in place for, for long periods of time. The military is very capable of carrying out aggressive campaigns and it's doing the same in, in Papua today. But... Um, in other places within Indonesia where the military is not quite as aggressive as in those conflict areas, they still play an important part um, within, you know, um, controlling uh, the economy and what's happening and controlling this political sphere as well. And we see a, a reconsolidation of the military at the moment. So um, in the the presidential election that will be happening next uh, next year. We have the current president, Joko Widodo, who was praised at the time for coming into power as someone who had no connections to the military. He'll be facing off against a, a former general and it's the military trying to reassert itself back into uh, the political life. So we haven't had that proper separation. And along those lines, I'm, I'm curious because the the discussion, the way we started was you're talking about the army having a, a different vision for Indonesia, one that at least in its essentials or in important ways saw communism as the threat to 
the future Indonesian state or nation. Uh, but of course, by the early to mid 90s, communism, at least globally speaking, isn't really much of a threat anymore. So, so how much did that anti-communism that at least was important at the beginning, to what degree did that continue to form an essential part of the army's vision for its role in Indonesia? It's it's a bit crazy sometimes how it seems that Indonesia is caught in a bit of a time warp. The Cold War has never ended in Indonesia because it's such a major justification for what the military did and it hasn't there's been no pressure to change that, but it also has no interest in changing that. Just the other day in the news, Jokowi was asking for there to be a clarification that he did not have a connection with the Indonesian Communist Party. It's still being used as a slur against leaders in Indonesia. And if you, there, there was a release of um, some of the military's training documents. It was published in The Intercept about 18 months ago now. And the military is describing the threats that it's facing within Indonesia. And one of these is the resurgence of communism in Indonesia. And it's a joke to think that, you know, there is this resurgent, you know, Communist Party with Indonesia. But I think what they really fear is the population mobilising in the same way that we see um, throughout the world at the moment, the fear by those in power of ordinary people having control of their lives and, you know, maybe pursuing policies that have ordinary people in mind rather than the oligarchs and what they're hoping to achieve by being able to control uh, the political debate. A different kind of question. M- many of the, much of the book is at least grounded in the interviews you did. I, I wonder if you could pick an interview or a person whose account really stuck with you um, and tell their story to the audience. Uh, someone that I interviewed. Yeah. There's, there's a few. And I should say, I did uh, not give you, I, I didn't give you any time. I didn't prep you for this question, so I understand that you may be racking your brain right now trying to think of an example that you. Well, want there's, to use. there's two main one, two main interviews that have stuck in my head, and they're, they're, they're two for different yeah. reasons. One of them is, I met uh, with this man, um, who was one of these death squad leaders, um, and I had tea with him, and. Mm. I just the whole time I was thinking, oh, my God, I, I know what you've done. And it was the most surreal experience to have this discussion with this old man who, you know, was a grandfather and he was trying to tell his story before it was too late. He felt like, you know, his story had not been told enough. Um, so that was an extremely surreal experience and having to really keep my own opinions to myself but realising that as long as I did that, you know, he was more than happy to talk with me about what had happened. In fact, he gave me his CV as a way to prove his credentials (laughs) as a member of this organisation. So that was a a bizarre situation. Um, But another uh, man that I met, his name was um, Ibrahim Kadir. I met with him over a number of days in central Aceh. And he was a man who was a teacher in the, the lead-up to 1965. He wasn't a member of the Indonesian Communist Party. Um, he was arrested um, a few days after the, the military's coup and brought into military custody. He was forced to assist the military to prepare um, civilians for execution. Um, so he put the Hessian sack over their head and bind their, their hands um, before them. He saw them being placed onto trucks and spoke about how he knew that they were aware that they were about to be killed. Um, and seeing this un- unfolding, um, and it was a, a horrific experience for him, and he shared that with me. Um, I, I went on that interview um, with my my son, who was still only two years old, or not yet two years old at that huh. time, and he, he he joined us on this discussion. And at one stage, he was um, he was he was getting bored by us talking and just 
this split attention of what I needed to be doing was my son's crying, my baby son is crying, and this man is telling me he's reenacting this absolutely horrific experience that he's he's been through, and this story that you know hasn't yet properly been told. But those are probably the the two interviews that stick in my mind the most. That, that's remarkable, I have to say. Um, and and finally. And to broaden this out, this is a book about Indonesia, uh, but it is a book about genocide. And so I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you think this book fit in, fits into the broader field of genocide studies and, and what we, the people who study genocide in general can learn from your research. I think it's an example of a case that's just been written out of the record, really. There was an awareness of when it was happening, um, the scale of what was happening, um, and people writing in the 60s and 70s about what was happening and the need to pay attention. Um, But becoming completely eclipsed, I guess, by the the broader debates about our alliances in the Cold War and the entire story of 1965 becoming lost. I mean, I know that before I began my research, I'd never heard about um, this case, which is a a massive case. It's one of the worst cases of mass killings in the 20th century. That's the way that the, um, the CIA describes what happened in Indonesia, and yet it's managed to just sort of disappear from the record and it's interesting if we, we look at the debate specifically about whether or not the case um, constitutes a case of genocide and often debates sort of get stuck in a semantics debate about whether or not Indonesia should be seen in that way. But um, that was the way that genocide scholars were speaking about Indonesia in the, the early uh, 1980s and Indonesia was being placed in these uh, major comparative studies and being treated in that way. But the problem was the lack of evidence, the evidence gap, the fact that it was impossible to prove the military's role in what happened. And over time that problem was, I think, mistaken for this idea that it was difficult um, to see Indonesia in that way for, for different reasons. And it became a discussion about uh, who were the identity of the victims and um, more sort of semantics debate in that way um, rather than uh, the fact that, you know, we don't have access to documents from this period to prove what the military was trying to do. And, of course, we now do have access to that sort of information. And I think it would be very interesting to see if um, Indonesia can enter back into that debate and sort of be taken more seriously. It's not about the term that we use to describe the event at the end of the day. It's, I think, acknowledging that this, uh, you know, event that completely changed the course of modern Indonesian history happened and has been largely written out of um, our histories of that period. And we really need to come to terms with what happened, uh, can give us a better understanding of um, the Cold War in Southeast Asia and what was really at stake and what the West was willing to participate in and support in order to achieve, you know, its political outcomes. But also um, the situation in Indonesia today, the fact that the left is so weak, the fact that the military is so, still so strong and the need to sort of uh, still have that political and historical reckoning, I think, with what happens. Well, it's a terrific book, and um, and I've had a great time talking with you about it, and I appreciate the time. And I'll I'll just close by asking you the the simple question, although it's one that strikes fear into the uh, hearts of everyone who likes free time and leisure. Um, what's your next project? Oh well, what I'm currently trying to to um, 
explain is, you know, this idea that the killings and the military's coup are so closely intertwined and explain uh, mm. the way in which um, the military was able to seize control nationally. So that's um, what I'm writing about at the moment and really explaining the way that, you know, although the case study that I looked at looks at Aceh specifically, it tells us so much more because of the the evidence that is embedded in those documents and what they are able to tell us about the military's campaign nationally. So really plotting out the way in which the military seized control and the way that the campaign was carried out nationally as, you know, in some ways semi-autonomous but nonetheless um, centrally controlled campaign. And that's the next big sort of challenge uh, for people looking at 1965 um, to be able to explain that very clearly and to apply the same sort of um, rigorous uh, chronology um, to it rather than speaking in generalities. But um, my next project after that, I think, will be to look at uh, the military's relationship with right-wing Islam because the military did mobilise um, right-wing Islam in 1965 and it was a way for them to sort of explain what was happening in a way that didn't need to be, yes, we are now setting out to kill our political enemies. But because that past has never been addressed, it's still an incredibly emotive issue within Indonesia. It's very difficult to um, combat um, this idea that, you know, if you frame it, through religion, um, that you cannot question um, the politics. And we saw this um, happening in the recent campaign against um, Ahok, the, the governor in Jakarta, where he was accused of blasphemy. And we see some of those really um, horrible and disturbing um, slogans that were also being used in, in the, the, the genocide about, you know, we need to kill the kafir and what the roots of that sort of um, connection between the military and right-wing Islam are. That is my, my next project. Well, it sounds like a great project, although it's one that will probably last you for quite a few years. But I hope as you complete it, you'll come back and be willing to talk about it again on the show. And until then, I want to say thanks again. Um, and we really appreciate your being on. Thanks, Kelly, for having me on. You've been listening to an interview with Jess Melvin about her new book, The Army and the Indonesian Genocide, Mechanics of Mass Murder, published by Revelage. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when we'll take a break from our short series of podcasts about Indonesia to speak with Sarah Brennis about her new book, Spaniards in Mauthausen, representations of a Nazi concentration camp. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.